This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for a new morning. We thank you that you have given us a more sure word of prophecy. And I pray that we would give heed, heed to the light that shines from prophecy into the dark place of this world, but may we not be led into confusion by a false understanding of prophecy. So be, be with us and guide us through this presentation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we are a prophetic people, and prophecy is really one of the key elements that drives the engine of Adventism. The Seventh-day Adventist movement was started based on an understanding of prophecy. And so obviously the study of prophecy continues to ignite widespread interest for study among Seventh-day Adventists. And I encourage you to continue to study prophecy. But what I'm going to share with you in the next few moments are some areas that have led to confusion. And some recent date-setting trends have emerged in the last um, few months and even years. Although I will have to say, as someone who's now 41, that I've seen date-setting for most of my Adventist life. And as can be expected, these dates come and go, and the date-setters move on to the next prediction. Well, one of the latest predictions that's come around is that sometime around March or April of 2019, a National Sunday Law is going to be passed, which obviously that raises the antenna of all Seventh-day Adventists, because we know that once the National Sunday Law comes, that's the trigger for the end of all things. So, Others are claiming that probation is going to close for Seventh-day Adventists on November 9, 2019. I'm going to get into um, who are saying these things as we go along here. And these are all a violation of the plainest statements from Ellen White on time setting. We are not to be time setters as Seventh-day Adventists. So other issues include the so-called 2520 prophecy. I've put it in quotation marks because it's not really a prophecy. There's advocacy of feast-keeping on lunar Sabbaths. There's been reapplication of the seven trumpets, which have been fulfilled in the past, into the future. Some are saying that the end of Daniel 11 is somehow a Middle East conflict that will lead to the close of probation. So these are some of the things that we are going to look at. That's where we're headed in our presentation today. Now, as respect to current confusion, on October 17, 2018, David Gates, who is a missionary pilot in South America, lives here in the United States but often goes down to South America and around the world, released a video on YouTube entitled Even at the Door. Now, David Gates is a well-known person of influence within certain circles of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and to date, this video has over 220,000 views. Now, I certainly believe that Brother Gates is sincere in what he is saying, but I believe he's sincerely wrong. I'm going to show you why. 
Um, so I'm not questioning his integrity. I'm just saying that I believe that he is um, deceived in what he is saying. So here's what he claims in this video. He points out that at the 2015 General Conference session in San Antonio, the Seventh-day Adventist Church voted a change in its belief about the writings of Ellen G. White that constitutes a rejection of her writings. And he says that the General Conference, quote, at least considers her writings not to be inspired anymore. Now, that's a serious charge. So David Gates is saying that the General Conference in session considers the spirit of prophecy to not be inspired anymore. That's what he says in the video. And on that basis, he promotes the idea of three and a half years from the rejection of the testimony of Jesus to something momentous being happening after that. And he uses some parallels from history. He says that three and a half years from the death of Jesus, we have the stoning of Stephen. And three and a half years from the initial surrounding of Jerusalem, then we have its destruction. Now, that's true. There were three and a half years from the death of Jesus to the stoning of Stephen, and there were three and a half years from the initial surrounding of Jerusalem to its destruction. However, he is making a big idea about what happened in the change in the wording of the fundamental beliefs about Ellen White's writings, and then uses that to start a three-and-a-half-year time period. So, interestingly, the vote on this change of wording for the spirit of prophecy was in July of 2015. However, he starts his three-and-a-half years from September 23, 2015, which was the Day of Atonement, according to the Jewish calendar, in the year 2015. Now, he claims in the video that this is also the day that the Pope addressed Congress. He was in America that day, but he didn't address Congress until September 24, the day later. Not a big point, but just clarity here. So Pope Francis, a joint, a joint, a joint session of Congress on September 24, 2015. David Gates claims that Rome invaded America on this date in history. So that's kind of an interesting claim. Um, as best as I can understand from prophecy, Rome will not invade America until America forms an image to the beast through a Sunday law, um, where we pay homage to the papacy. You know, certainly Rome is gaining influence, but to say that Rome invaded America, that's an arbitrary claim without any clear prophetic backing. So, these are some of the claims that he's making. And then he goes on to say, so he's, rather than starting his three and a half year timeline from the date of the vote at the general conference session, he starts it on September 23 when the Pope addressed Congress. It was really the 24th. And he says, if you go three and a half years from that date, that takes you to March or April of 2019. Now, if you do some simple math, I could give you the date that you could get to three and a half years later. I'm not going to do that. He just simply says it's March or April of 2019. However, he is promoting a video from um, a, a former pastor now who has set a specific date in that time range. Now, David Gates says that he is not time-setting. And when there was a response to his video, he says, you're confused, I'm not time-setting. Well, that's his sincere thought, but when you say 
there's three and a half years from one point to the next, and at the end of that three and a half years, there's going to be a national Sunday law, I fail to understand how that's not time-setting. I mean, time-setting is time-setting. Either it is or it isn't. So if you say March or April of 2019, that's setting a time for a Sunday law. He says it's not time-setting, but that is what it is. So he believes, and this is what he says in the video, that we have been living in the judgment of the living since September of 2015. Um, Now, he believes that around March or April of 2019, there will be a national Sunday law and probation will close for Seventh-day Adventists And he is sincere about this, excuse me, Um, he is sincere about this, but he expects us to believe him. Now, interestingly, David Gates does not show the statement in his video. He does not show the statement for the change in wording of Seventh-day Adventist beliefs on the writings of Ellen G. White. So he's making this major claim that Ellen White's writings are no longer considered to be inspired anymore by Seventh-day Adventists, but he doesn't show how the wording itself was actually changed. So considering that he is basing his belief that this helped to trigger the end of all things for Seventh-day Adventists, I found that to be pretty irresponsible to release a video where you say Seventh-day Adventists don't believe Ellen White's writings are inspired anymore, but you don't give the updated statement to show what Seventh-day Adventists voted to believe about her writings. So, um, again, he's sincere, but we are expected to take his word. And here's the interesting thing. If you watch the video, he says several times, the Lord has shown me. And I had a friend who had a dream but again, um, when, when you have impressions or friends who have dreams and those dreams and impressions are not according to the word of God, it's because there's no light in them. So we can't accept someone's word as authority if their word goes against the plainly revealed statements of inspiration. And I'm going to show you where, where things go off track for him. So here is... The 2010 statement on LNG White that ended up being changed in 2015. So this is from the 2010 church manual. And notice how it reads, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church and was manifested in the ministry of LNG White. As the Lord's messenger, her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth, which provides, which provide for the church comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction. They also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. So that's the statement that Ellen, or on Ellen White's writings that the church had had for a number of years. Um, and in 2015, they changed it to say this. It's very similar. The scriptures testify that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church, and we believe it was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. Her writings speak with prophetic authority and provide comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction to the church. They also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. Now, I'll say this. I think you could have a fair discussion to say, which statement is better, the 2010 statement or the 2015 statement? That would be a fair discussion. But here's what I don't accept. I don't accept that this statement here constitutes a rejection of the ministry and writings of Ellen G. White. 
Notice what it says. It says that this gift of prophecy is an identifying mark of the remnant church, and we believe it was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. Does that sound like a rejection? And then her writings speak with prophetic authority. Now, the previous statement said we believe her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth. Here it says her writings speak with prophetic authority. Well, if you want to just be clear here, if her writings speak with prophetic authority, that means they have authority to settle issues, right? So, and as I understand, this new wording it makes it easier to translate in some of the other languages. So you can say, you know, I like it to say better that it's a continuing and authoritative source of truth rather than saying that her writings speak with a prophetic authority. And fair enough, I'll give you that. But to say that this constitutes a rejection of her writings, and based on that, that starts a three-and-a-half-year time prophecy that's going to lead to the National Sunday Law around March or April of 2019, and we're now living in the judgment of the living, that's a major stretch, and I find to be irresponsible to say that the General Conference no longer continues for, or believes that her writings are inspired. That's what he said, that her writings are no longer inspired, yet the, this statement says we believe that her gift is, as manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White, is an identifying mark of the remnant church. So you have to be careful when you start to make claims like this. So again, he believes that the General Conference does not believe Ellen White's writings are inspired anymore, yet the statement shows that Seventh-day Adventists affirm that her writings are an identifying mark of the remnant church and that her writings speak with prophetic authority. And for those of you who heard Elder Wilson last night, I mean, how many times did he quote from the spirit of prophecy? And so to claim that they no longer believe her writings to be inspired is just not true. And it's very unfortunate that someone of his influence would make such a claim, although I'm hoping that people won't take him as seriously now that he's released that video unless he repents of the things that he said. So some further confusion. So David Gates shares a link on his video to a Seventh-day Adventist who's now a former pastor. He just actually... Um, this is common knowledge now, he actually was terminated by his conference for these teachings. And um, he, D- David Gates is promoting this, and this former pastor, they are reinterpreting the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 days of Daniel 12 as literal time prophecies. Now, this is actually not a new thing. I've seen people try to reinterpret the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 for many years. The new thing about it, though, is is that they're using those days to arrive in March or April of 2019 as the time for the Sunday Law um, that's going to come. And again, it's an arbitrary point that they're picking to say, we're going to start 1260, 1290, and 1335 in the fall of 2015, and there's really no basis whatsoever to do that. So here's the ironic thing. David Gates says that the General Conference has rejected Ellen White's writings, and yet he is rejecting her clear testimony that there are no more time prophecies after 1844. Now, isn't that kind of ironic? 
So you're saying that the General Conference no longer considers Ellen White's writings to be inspired, and yet the inspired writings say no time prophecy after 1844, yet you're saying we have a time prophecy of three and a half years from the fall of 2015, we're now in the judgment of the living, and then a Sunday law is going to come in March or April of 2019. So who's rejecting the spirit of prophecy, the General Conference or David Gates? Now, I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just saying you made a serious charge. You said that the General Conference rejected the writings of Ellen White, and yet you're going against her very writings, and the statement that the General Conference voted in no way rejects her writings. So David Gates also claimed that the compliance document voted at annual council would allow the General Conference to disfellowship local church members. A clear reading of the document says no such thing. And by the way, Mark Finley did a nice job of, of putting out a response to this video as well where he explains that. So if you haven't seen Elder Finley's video, I encourage you to take a look at it. Now let's look at what Ellen White says on time prophecy. So we've looked at these claims and I'm also going to talk about the 1260, 1290, 1335. But what does Ellen White say about time prophecies? Here's a statement from Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 84, also found on Last Day Events, page 35. There will always be false and fanatical movements made by persons in the church who claim to be led of God. See, the Lord has shown me. I had a dream. My friend had a dream. I'm led by God. Those who will run before they are sent and will give day and date for the occurrence of unfulfilled prophecy. Now, you may say, oh, well, he's not giving a day or a date. No, he's saying March or April, but his friend is giving a day and a date. The enemy is pleased to have them do this for, this, for their successive failures and leading into false lines cause confusion and unbelief. Now, some of you may not know this, but Brother Gates said that there was going to be a Sunday law way back in 2008 connected with a financial collapse. Now, there was a financial downturn, but he also said that our money was going to be worth toilet paper, and that didn't happen. It was only um, partially true, and then there wasn't a Sunday law that went along with it. So there's successive failures and it leads to confusion and unbelief. And LMY identifies these things as false and fanatical movements made by persons in the church who claim to be led of God. And again, you've seen it once, you've seen it a hundred times. They'll use the Bible and the spirit of prophecy to support their ideas. And so people who aren't studying are like, wow, they're sincere, they're enthusiastic, they're using the Bible, they're using the spirit of prophecy, and my pastor hardly opens the spirit of prophecy. This must be true. Well, no, it's not. It's fanaticism. Time setting is not true. Now, notice this. No definite time after 1844. This is Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 73. I plainly stated at the Jackson camp meeting to these fanatical parties that they were doing the work of the adversary of souls. They were in darkness. They claimed to have great light that probation would close in October 1844. I there stated in public that the Lord had been pleased to show me that there would be no definite time in the message of God given or given of God since 1844. Now, how much cleric does that have to be? Now, you know, I, I engaged in dialogue with, with a brother um, not too long ago because I, I gave a message that's online that dealt with some of these issues. And he wrote me and he said, well, um, there's no more prophetic time after 1844, but that doesn't mean that there's not literal time after 1844. No, there's no 
definite time in the message, whether it's literal time or symbolic time, whatever you want to call it. There's no definite time in the message given of God since 1844. So up until 1844, we have time prophecies. After 1844, we have event prophecies that are not based on definite time. Does that make sense? So if you're trying to reinterpret prophetic time into literal time, that's still definite time. And Ellen White says that this is the work of the adversary of souls. That's serious, friends. This isn't just some, oh, he's sincere, don't give him such a hard time. No, this is the work of the adversary of souls to set time. And then you set time and you're saying, I'm not time-setting. Now, again, I don't think he's being dishonest. I think he really believes he's not time-setting. But then you're saying March or April, that's time-setting. Again, some more statements. No time proclamation after 1844. This is Manuscript Releases, Volume 10, page 270, also found on Last Day Events, page 36. Our position has been one of waiting and watching with no time proclamation to intervene between the close of the prophetic periods in 1844 and the time of our Lord's coming. The next statement, Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 971. The people will not have another message upon definite time. After this period of time reaching from 1842 to 44, there can be no definite tracing of the prophetic time. The longest reckoning reaches to the autumn of 1844. And by the way, the only way you can get to 1844, the autumn of 1844, is through the 2300 days. Um, People who... And we're going to talk about the 2520. But the 2300 days takes you to the Day of Atonement, which takes you to October 22. Ellen White says the longest reckoning reaches to the autumn of 1844. And again, Revelation chapter 10, verse 7 says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And just before that verse, you see Christ, the angel, swear by his right hand and his left unto heaven. And he says that there should be time no longer. In other words, once we come to the rise of the Advent movement in the 1840s and we come to the fulfillment of the 2300 days, there is no more prophetic time after 1844. Now, notice this. This is a statement from Review and Herald, October 9, 1894. And the, the heading that I put on here is that these false ideas are a message from Satan. Notice this. God has not revealed to us the time when this message will close or when probation will have an end. Those things that are revealed we shall accept for ourselves and for our children. But let us not seek to know that which has been kept secret in the counsel of the Almighty. It is our duty to watch and work and wait, to labor every moment for the souls of men that are ready to perish. We are to keep walking continually in the footsteps of Jesus, working in his lines, dispensing his gifts as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now look at this. Satan will be ready to give to anyone who is not learning every day of Jesus a special message of his own creating in order to make of no effect the wonderful truth for this time. So Satan is looking for those who will be confused and ready to lead people off the beaten path. 
Now here's another statement, Review and Herald, October 9, 1894. Letters have come to me asking if I have any special light as to the time when probation will close, and I answer that I have only this message to bear, that it is now time to work while the day lasts, for the night cometh in which no man can work. Now, just now, is it, it is time for us to be watching, working, and waiting. The word of the Lord reveals the fact that the end of all things is at hand, and its testimony is most decided that it is necessary for every soul to have the truth planted in the heart so that it will control the life and sanctify the character. The Spirit of the Lord is working to take the truth of the inspired word and stamp it upon the soul so that professed followers of Christ will have a holy, sacred joy that they will be able to impart to others. The opportune time for us to work is now, just now, while the day lasts. There is no command for anyone. Listen to this. There is no command for anyone to search the Scripture in order to ascertain, if possible, when probation will close. God has no such message for for any mortal lips. He would have no mortal tongue declare that which he has hidden in his secret counsels. And David Gates and his friends, especially the friends that he put the link to on his video, are saying, we can't know the time that Jesus is going to come, but we can use prophecy to figure out when probation will close. And yet, the servant of the Lord says, God has no such message for any mortal lips. So I'm going to stick with what the servant of the Lord here says, and that is is that we have no time prophecy that can say this is when probation is going to close. And by the way, just as an aside, let me just give you my brief understanding of how how probation is going to close. Because if I could have a nickel for every time someone asks me, does probation close for Adventists before the rest of the, the world? Boy, I would have a lot more money in my bank account for just a nickel every time someone asks me that question. And let me tell you this. Probation closes at the same time. Michael stands up and probation closes. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. But here's the thing. When you look at the parable of the ten virgins, five are wise, five are foolish. At midnight a cry is made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. That parallels with the loud cry of Revelation 18, where an angel comes down from heaven, having great power, the earth is lightened with his glory, and that parallels the Sunday law. So Ellen White has a statement that Babylon's sins reach heaven when the law of God is made void by legislation. And she makes that statement in connection with the loud cry of Revelation 18. So when Revelation 18 takes place, that means that the Sunday law has been passed and the parable of the ten virgins at the end of the world, the midnight cry, parallels the loud cry. So when all the sleeping virgins wake up, it means Adventism is like, whoa, the Sunday law, Jesus is at the door. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And then we see who has the oil and who doesn't. But notice, probation doesn't close until those who are ready go in with the bridegroom to the marriage and the door is shut. That's when probation closes. It doesn't close at the beginning of the Sunday law. 
And a lot of Adventists are confused about that and say, oh, probation closes when the Sunday law is passed. But here's, here's what may add some clarity of understanding. When the Sunday law is passed, your opportunity for preparation has come to an end, and now your character will be revealed. So this is now what we call the judgment of the living, those who are wise are ready for that test. Those who are foolish are not ready for the test. If you have the oil, you're ready for the test. If you don't have the oil, you're not. It's like when you take an exam in school. Up until the moment that you walk into that room, you can have your book open trying to cram in a last few pieces of information. But once you walk into that room and you have your books in your locker and you just have at least back in my day, your pen and paper. I don't know what you do now, but maybe you take it online. I don't know. But once you walk in, there is no more opportunity for preparation. What you know is what you know, but probation closes when you hand in the test, not when you walk into the room. So the Sunday law is like walking into the room at the beginning of the examination. Probation closes at the end with a death decree. Does that make sense? So when people are saying, oh, probation is going to close for Adventists in March or April of 2019, well, actually, then you'd be saying um, there's going to be a death decree or whatever. You know, the Sunday law isn't even actually the close of probation. Now, it's your end of opportunity for preparation. But probation doesn't close until the end of the Sunday law crisis. And we don't know when the Sunday law is going to come. And by the way, when you study the parable of the ten virgins, it comes as a shock to the sleeping church. It's not like everyone's like, see, we knew that time prophecy from October or September of 2015 was going to lead to the cry, behold, the bridegroom cometh, now we're all awake. No, it comes at a moment when nobody expected it. That's what the parable teaches. So that should hopefully add some clarity. So when you hear people saying, oh, we can figure out when probation is going to close, Ellen White says God has no such message for any mortal lips. Now let's talk briefly about the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335. David Gates, along with his former pastor of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, among others, are trying to reinterpret the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 of Daniel 12 as literal time prophecies. They acknowledge the historical fulfillment of these prophecies, but they believe there is a literal future fulfillment. So there's the statement from letter 161, July 30, 1903. Let us read and understand the 12th chapter of Daniel. It is a warning we shall all need to understand before the time of the end. So this statement is used as justification for the new understanding of futurism that is being promoted. Um, They point out that Daniel 12 and Revelation 10 are closely linked. I agree with that. They point out that Revelation 10 verse 11 says, Thou must prophesy again. And they say, it is then it is thus claimed that the prophecies of Daniel 12 have a dual application because of this phrase, Thou must prophesy again. But the reality is, is that Revelation 10 verse 11 says, Thou must prophesy again before many nations, peoples, tongues, and kings. That's simply saying, after you go through the bitter disappointment of 1844, where you had an understanding of the first and the second angel's message, after 1844, you have an understanding of the third angel's message, which is not based on time, 
and you are going to prophesy again with the prophetic understanding of the third angel's message, and it's not a time-based message. So it's not saying that the prophecies of Daniel 12 have a dual application after 1844. It's simply saying that the third angel's message needs to be prophesied again in a wider proclamation than what happened in 1844. Now, this next statement is Manuscript Releases, Volume 5, page 203. I'm not going to read that whole first paragraph. It's about a brother Nickel. And then there was a brother H that had some errors going on. So in the second paragraph we read, we told brother H of some of his errors in the past that the 1335 days were ended and numerous other errors of his. So in other words, he, this brother H believed that the 1335, this is around the year 1850, he still believed there was a future fulfillment to the 1335. And LMI says, no, those days are ended. They already came to their fulfillment. So let's look at the true meaning of Daniel chapter 12. Some try to make this a dual application chapter. Daniel chapter 12 verses 1 through 4 is a continuation of the prophecy of Daniel 10 and 11. It's a fascinating study. So you get to the end of Daniel 11 verse 45 and then you come to chapter 12 verse 1. It says, and at that time shall Michael stand up. That's a direct continuation of thought. And so then it continues on um, through verse 4. Then verses 5 through 13 are an explanation of key points of this vision. This is identical to the pattern of Daniel 2, 7, and 8. So in Daniel 2, you see the vision, the image, and then there's an explanation. Daniel 7, you see the four beasts and a little horn, and then that, and then the judgment scene, and then there's an explanation. Daniel 8, you see the ram and the hego and the little horn and the cleansing of the sanctuary, and then there's an explanation. And chapter 9 actually gives further explanation to chapter 8. The same thing happens with Daniel chapter 12. Um, with respect to Daniel 11. So Daniel 12 verses 5 through 13 does not stand by itself. It is an explanation of Daniel 11. Does that make sense? Okay. So Daniel 12 verse 1 identifies the close of probation when Michael stands up. It also describes the deliverance of God's people whose names are found written in the book. Verse 2 describes the special resurrection. Verse 3 describes the wise who have given the loud cry and who shine as the brightness of the firmament. Verse 4 shows that the understanding of the prophecy of Daniel 11 and 12 was sealed until the time of the end. You know, some people, and not that this is heresy, but you sometimes have gone to evangelistic meetings where it says men shall run to and fro, knowledge shall increase after this vision was sealed. And you see slides of like trains and automobiles and airplanes, knowledge has increased. Well, that might be a secondary application, but the primary application is that the knowledge of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, especially the sealed portion of the 2300 days and the prophecy of Daniel 11 and 12, that comes to a greater understanding after 1798. And the Advent movement ran to and fro with a chart to explain this message. Verses 5 to 13 are a further explanation of the prophecy of Daniel 11 and 12. And verse 7 shows that Christ swears by himself that it will take a time, times and a half, or 1260 years, to scatter God's people until 1798. Verses 8 through 10 then reveal that after 1798, the wise will be purified and made to understand the prophecy, and the wicked will not understand. And then verse 11 connects 
to Daniel 11.31 where it says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Verse 12 then says, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and thirty-five days. Now Daniel 11.31, talking about the daily being taken away, which I believe historically represents paganism that was taken away, because you can't show me historically any time that Christ's ministry was ever taken away, because if the daily is the heavenly ministry of Christ, Daniel says it was taken away, but Hebrews 7.25 says that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. So 508 is when paganism was taken away, and that's our beginning point for the 1290 and the 1335-year time prophecies. So they extend respectively from 508 to 1798 or 508 to 1843. That's what is being pointed out at the end of Daniel chapter 12. So what's the significance of 1798 and 1843? 1798 is the beginning of the time of the end until the second coming of Jesus. And 1843 is the year the Millerites originally believed that Jesus would come. And when it says, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the, to the thousand three hundred five and thirty days, there is a special blessing for those who were alive at the time of the proclamation of the coming of Jesus around the year 1843. And so what God is trying to say at the end of the book of Daniel is, Here's what I want you to realize about the prophecy of Daniel 11. Daniel 11 is funneling you to the end of the world, to the time of the end, and between the time of the end, 1798 to 1843, I'm going to raise up a special movement after God's people have been scattered during the Dark Ages, and there's going to be a special blessing for those who are alive around the year 1843 when they originally believed that Jesus would come, because these are my people that I am raising up, to call a people out of this world to be ready for heaven. Now, um, so God wants us to understand these as the focal points of history. Interestingly, if you look at the number of times that prophecy points us to 1798, you see it in Daniel 7:25, Daniel 11:33 and 35, Daniel 12:7 and 11, Revelation 11:2 and 3, Revelation 12:6, Revelation 12:14, and Revelation 13:5. We have at least nine times that prophecy points us to 1798. Do you think that might be important? So, um, and I didn't even mention there Daniel 11, verse 40, which says at the time of the end, so you could even say 10 times. So again, Ellen White says, we told Brother H of some of his errors in the past that the 1335 days were ended and numerous errors of his. Now, what they try to say is that the Hebrew word for days in Daniel 12, 11, and 12 is different than times in Daniel 7, 25, which is in Aramaic, or Daniel 12, verse 7, which is Hebrew, and then for the evenings and mornings in Daniel 8, 14, and 26, which is also in Hebrew. And so they say that this is the same word throughout the Old Testament to describe literal days. Now, if you haven't studied much, you're like, oh man, I guess this might, these might be literal days. So they then believe that 1260, 1290, and the 1335 days must represent literal time. However, the Hebrew word for days in Daniel 12 is the same as the word for days in Numbers 1434 and Ezekiel 4, 6, which we use to prove 
prove the year-day principle, and Ellen White corroborates this by using these verses. And the word for days in the Greek in Revelation 11, 2, and 12, 6 is the same word used to describe literal days in the New Testament. Yet that's clearly describing prophetic time. And the word for months in the Greek in Revelation 11, 3, and 13, 5 is used to describe literal months in the New Testament. So clearly the fact that we have no more time prophecy after 1844 tells us that if you start reinterpreting the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 after 1844 is to violate the principles of prophetic interpretation. And so we don't have any time prophecy after 1844, literal or symbolic. Um, And so that's basically... Uh, a straightforward explanation of what Daniel 12 is, is doing. And so Daniel 12 is just an explanation of what some of the important points of understanding are from the prophecy of Daniel 10 and 11. So that's basically that issue. Now I'm going to move on to the 2520. Jeff Pippinger and the 2520. Jeff Pippinger is a leader of a ministry in Arkansas known as Future for America. He and others have been proclaiming a 2520 so-called prophecy for several years. Again, I have prophecy in quotation marks because it's not really a prophecy. Um, They point out that the Millerites preached this 2520 prophecy based on Leviticus 26, and it was on their 1843 chart. One of the 2520 was one of several ways that the Millerites pointed to 1843. Of course, it really would go to 1844 once they figured that out. Same as 2300 days. And so they identify this time period from 677 BC to 1843 AD. They point out that Leviticus 26 says that God would punish Israel seven times if they were disobedient. And they say that in 677 BC, Manasseh of Judah was taken captive, and that's then the beginning of this time prophecy. Interestingly, though, um, the Jews didn't really finally go into captivity until Babylon took them into captivity, so that's kind of an arbitrary starting point as a way to get to 1843 or 1844. So now Jeff Pippinger updated the 2520 prophecy. He added what Hiram Edson had proposed about the 2520, and Hiram Edson proposed that it should be from 723 to 1798 because he, he believed that the northern territory was taken into captivity by the Assyrians once and for all in 723 BC. And so um, Jeff Pippinger combines what Hiram Edson and William Miller taught and said you have two 2520 prophecies, one that ends in 1798 and one that ends in 1844. Um, So you have the two starting points and um, Pippinger and his associates begin teaching that this is a testing truth for modern Adventism because it was part of the platform of truth that God raised the Millerites up upon and that you must accept this truth to receive the latter rain and to be sealed. Now, Pippinger's gone a lot further than that even since then. So just some points of clarity. The word for times is different than the times in Daniel. It means intensity rather than duration. It's found four times in Leviticus 26 and describes what will happen to Israel if disobedient. So it's like this 
intensity of punishment that God will pour out upon Israel if they are disobedient. Now, they try to say, look, this was on the 1843 chart, and Ellen White says in early writings, page 74, I have seen that the 1843 chart was directed by the hand of the Lord, and that it should not be altered, that the figures were as he wanted them, that his hand was over and hid a mistake in some of the figures so that none could see it until his hand was removed. So it shouldn't be altered. It's on the chart. Don't take the 2520 away from us. But Ellen White has a corroborating statement Spalding and McGann collection, page one, which says, I saw that the truth should be made plain upon tables, that the earth and the fullness thereof is the Lord's, and that necessary means should not be spared to make it plain. I saw that the old chart was directed by the Lord, and that, a not, a, and that not a figure of it should be altered, except by inspiration. So Ellen White says, if you have inspiration that suggests some of the figures are wrong, it can be altered. And, um, and she goes on to to say there was a mistake in some of the figures. Well, what does inspiration say about the longest and last prophetic period? This is Great Controversy 351. The experience of the disciples who preached the gospel of the kingdom at the first advent of Christ had its counterpart in the experience of those who proclaimed the message of his second advent. As the disciples went out preaching the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, so Miller and his associates proclaimed that the longest and last prophetic period brought to be in the Bible was about to expire, that the judgment was at hand, and the everlasting kingdom was to be ushered in. Well, what was this longest and last prophetic time period? Same quote here. The preaching of the disciples in regard to time was based on the 70 weeks of Daniel 9. The message given by Miller and his associates announced the termination of what? 2300 days. Now, just a simple math question. What is longer, 2300 or 2520? So 2520 is longer than 2300, right? So if Ellen White is saying that the 2300 days is the longest and last prophetic time period, what does that do to the 2520? It means it's not a a prophetic time period. Because 2300 days is the longest time period. So the preaching of each was based upon the fulfillment of a different portion of the same great prophetic period. Some people get confused by that. But the 70 weeks are cut off from the 2300 days and they have the same starting point. But the 2300 days is the entire period. So the, great, the same great prophetic period is the 2300 days. The 70 weeks are cut off from that. Now again, Ellen White says a few other things. I think I already quoted this. The people will not have another message upon definite time. After this period of time, reaching from 1842 to 1844, there can be no definite tracing of the prophetic time. The longest reckoning reaches to the autumn of 1844. That's 7 BC 971. And the only way we can get to autumn of 1844, I said this already, is through the 2300 days that takes us to the day of atonement. Now, this Jeff Pippinger deception, he's been disfellowshipped from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, He was part of a group that um, was accepting tithe, and of course they were teaching this as a testing truth. And now he claims to be a modern prophet to the Seventh-day Adventist movement, similar to Victor Hutip of Shepherd's Rod. Of course, Pippinger would deny that he's Victor, like Victor Hutip, but he is. And what he says is that William Miller was the messenger to the Millerite movement, and he is the messenger to the Advent movement. So he's making some pretty serious claims about himself. He has formed a new church called the Church Triumphant, and he teaches that probation will close for Seventh-day Adventists on November 9, 2019. Now, I have a friend who um, had been into this movement, and he told me that he was all into these teachings, 
And then when he got into it, his realization is, is that this is utter fanaticism. And he said, warn the people, don't come anywhere near this. If you hear anything from Future for America or Church Triumphant or Pippinger, any of this stuff, warn the people, don't let them speak in your churches. This is, is serious fanaticism that you don't want to be a part of. And unfortunately, the churches that have had people come into their church to promote the 2520 and things of that nature inevitably leads to church splits, um, just as the anti-Trinitarian movement has also done. Very similar um, spirit and methodology. Now, I'm going to talk about a few other things. Um, There's the feast-keeping deception. Now, We don't necessarily need to spend a whole lot of time on this, but just think about this. We are living in the anti-typical Day of Atonement. That should answer the question right there, right? It's a day to fast and afflict your soul spiritually. We don't keep feasts during the anti-typical Day of Atonement. Now, I'll admit this. Some of the worldly Adonists don't give a good look for how we should be living during the anti-typical Day of Atonement, but that then doesn't justify to go and violate what God has said by doing feast-keeping, because feast-keeping, it was a shadow that pointed to Christ. We're not living in the shadow anymore. Christ has come as the Lamb of God, and so we don't live under the ceremonial law. Some Seventh-day Adventists teach that the feast Sabbaths are binding for us to keep as much as the Seventh-day Sabbath. In order to be sealed, they teach we must keep the feast. And then they have the statement from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 540, um, speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles, that these yearly assemblies, the hearts of old and young, would be encouraged in the service of God, while the association of the people from the different quarters of the land would strengthen the ties that bound them to God and one another. Well would it be for the people of God at the present time to have a Feast of Tabernacles, a joyous commemoration of the blessings of God to them. Now notice she doesn't say to have the Feast of Tabernacles. She says, a Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you understand what the Jews did during their time, they would come to Jerusalem three times a year to keep the feasts. And Ellen White is saying, well, it would be for us to have a Feast of Tabernacles. So we can apply things like GYC to being a Feast of Tabernacles and your local conference camp meeting, maybe ASI, other similar meetings of that nature. That's a Feast of Tabernacles where you come together as the people of God Um, where you have a joyous commemoration of the blessings of God and you hear messages that inspire you, that does not say that we should be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, in the literal sense, took place five days after the Day of Atonement. So antitypically, it takes place once the Day of Atonement is completed. We are going to keep the antitypical Feast of Tabernacles in heaven, not on earth. So, just a few points. The ceremonial law was nailed to the cross. Colossians 2, verses 14 through 17 talks about this law contained in ordinances that was nailed to the cross. Ellen White has a statement about this in Manuscript 43, 1887. The laws of sacrificial offerings were typical and were in force until type should reach its anatype and the greater and holy perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. These sacrifices and services of the temple were to cease with the perfect offering of Christ himself as the lamb without blemish. These sacrifices were abolished at the cross. This handwriting of ordinances our Lord did blot out and take away and nail to his cross. And then speaking about the Passover, 
desire of age of 652 Christ was standing at the point of transition between two economies and their two great festivals. He, the spotless Lamb of God, was about to present himself as a sin offering that he would thus bring to an end the system of types and ceremonies that for 4,000 years had pointed to his death. As he ate the Passover with his disciples, he instituted in its place the service that was to be the memorial of his great sacrifice. That's communion. Then she says the national festival of the Jews was to pass away for how long? Forever. The service which Christ established was to be observed by his followers in all lands and through all ages. So the feast, they pass away forever. Christ instituted um, the communion service um, going forward from that time. Now a few other points. Um, truth on the trumpets. There are those who are trying to reinterpret the seven trumpets to have a future fulfillment, and they try to line them up with the seven last plagues. That's be, that becomes a challenge because the fifth and the sixth trumpets have time prophecies associated with them. You have the five months in the fifth trumpet. You have the one hour, one day, one year prophecy in the sixth trumpet. So just a brief overview. The first four trumpets are a judgment on Western Rome. The fifth and sixth trumpets are a judgment on Eastern Rome. The seventh trumpet is a judgment on spiritual Rome. They are all judgments on Rome for the persecution of God's people. So the first four trumpets culminate with the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476, and God used the barbarians to carry out these judgments on the Western Roman Empire. The fifth and the sixth trumpets were carried out by the Ottoman Empire, the Islamic people, the Ottomans, who carried out judgments on the Eastern Roman Empire. We see that in Revelation chapter 9. And then you have the three woes which correlate with the last three trumpets. So um, you have a time prophecy in the fifth trumpet um, that starts on July 27, 1299, when the Ottomans first enter into the territory of the Eastern Roman Empire, and that extends for five months. That's the time prophecy of five months. So that goes to 1449. And then in the sixth trumpet, you have the prophecy of one hour, one day, one month, and one year, which goes for 391 years and 15 days. That takes you all the way to August 11, 1840. Now, some Adventists are throwing this out and saying, oh, yeah, August 11, 1840 doesn't make sense. But notice what Ellen White says in Great Controversy 334. In the year 1840, another remarkable fulfillment of prophecy excited widespread interest. Two years before, Josiah Lich, one of the leading ministers preaching the Second Advent, published an exposition of Revelation 9 predicting the fall of the Ottoman Empire. According to his calculations, this power was to be overthrown in AD 1840, sometime in the month of August, and only a few days previous to its accomplishment, he wrote, allowing the first period of 150 years to have been exactly fulfilled before Diakosis ascended the throne by permission of the Turks, and that the 391 years, 15 days, commenced at the close of the first period. It will end on the 11th of August, 1840, when the Ottoman power in Constantinople may be expected to be broken, and this, I believe, will be the case. Now, notice what Ellen White says. At the very time specified, Turkey, through her ambassadors, accepted the production of the allied powers of Europe and thus placed herself under the control of Christian nations. The event exactly fulfilled the prediction. And then she goes on to say that this fulfillment gave impetus and power to the Millerite movement. Now, some are saying, oh, well, Josiah Litch gave up his belief in that interpretation after 1844, so we don't need to believe that anymore. But you know also what Josiah Lich gave up his belief in? October 22, 1844. So are we going to throw out October 22, 1844 also? No. Inspiration says that that was the correct understanding. So the seventh trumpet commences in 1844 with a judgment. It culminates 
with the outpouring of the seven last plagues. Now, this last point, this is not um, a salvational issue the way I think David Gates has been deceiving people and Jeff Pippinger has been deceiving people and feast keepers have been deceiving people because they're all basically saying, if you don't get into line with what I'm saying, especially Pippinger and the feast keepers, you're going to be lost. David Gates is basically saying, this is a time prophecy and probation is going to close and he's deceiving people. This is more of a of a of a thought of i believe that god has given us clarity about what's going to happen at the end of the world and there are some views out there on daniel 11 that says we need to be looking at the middle east that islam is the king of the south or so forth and that when islam attacks christianity then the final events will kick into place well let me just um share with you um, a few thoughts. And again, I don't think people are going to be lost for believing that, but I think there can be a better clarity of understanding. Here's just a big picture view of Daniel. And um, if we had an hour, we could spend an hour on this, but I have five minutes to just explain this briefly. I'm, I, I'm assuming I'm talking to, to students of prophecies here, so I'm going to say this. We have four major prophecies, Daniel 2, 7, 8, and 11. And there is a culmination of each of these prophecies. You have the kingdoms of this world followed by an apocalyptic event. And so in Daniel chapter 2, the apocalyptic event is the coming of Jesus in the clouds. We don't know when that's going to be. After Daniel chapter 7, the apocalyptic event is not the coming of Jesus in the clouds. It's the beginning of the judgment in heaven, which we understand begins in 1844. At the end of Daniel 8, after the kingdoms of this world, and we have this 2300-day prophecy that takes us to the cleansing of the sanctuary, which is 1844. And in the prophecy of Daniel 11, after the kingdoms of this world, we come to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, where Michael stands up and probation closes. And again, we don't know exactly when that's going to take place. But here's something for your consideration. When you look at the big picture of Daniel as you try to fit all the pieces together, Daniel chapter 2 shows that Jesus is coming again. But Daniel chapter 7 shows us that in order for Jesus to come back, there must be a judgment in heaven first. Daniel 8 then shows us that in order for the judgment in heaven to be finished, the sanctuary in heaven must be cleansed. Daniel 11 shows us that when the sanctuary in heaven is cleansed, Michael stands up and probation closes. See how that all flows together? I find that to be very helpful. So that's why I don't believe that the end of Daniel 11 is about a Middle East regional conflict. I believe it is about what happens to God's people and their character as they enter into the final crisis. Are they ready spiritually for their lives to be cleansed of sin so that when Michael stands up, their names will be found written in the book? Now, I've heard some people say, if you take a spiritual application of the last 15 verses of Daniel chapter 11, you're switching hermeneutical horses. And my response to that is this, that when Michael stands up and it says, at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in the book, he's not standing up for Jews only. So if you believe that it's a literal interpretation or that it's about a Middle East thing at the end of Daniel 11, you're switching hermeneutical horses in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. Because Michael isn't standing up just for the Jews. He's standing up for everyone whose name is found written in the book. So big picture of Daniel. Daniel is a book about judgment. Every element on there is connected to judgment with the second coming, the judgment, the cleansing of the sanctuary, Michael standing up at the end of judgment. 
And so that's really a big picture of the book of Daniel. Daniel means God is my judge. He's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. But in order for him to come back, there must be a judgment that begins in heaven first in 1844. When the judgment in heaven finishes, the sanctuary, or in order for the judgment in heaven to finish, the sanctuary in heaven must be cleansed. And when it is cleansed, Michael stands up and probation closes. And that's really the big picture of the book of Daniel. Then once you see the big picture, then you go back and you start to fill in the details. Uh, but if you try to fill in the details without seeing the big picture, there's a decent chance you could kind of veer off into um, territory that doesn't necessarily make sense. Now, again, I have friends that believe... Um, differently on certain aspects of Daniel 11. I don't think that this is a testing truth or a salvation issue. I just find that it, I think all of us would agree that if we can have the best understanding of these prophecies, it will lead us to to clarity. So this is basically the end of, of my presentation on prophecy. Um, you're going to want to stick around for the next presentation because we're going to talk about confusion on ecclesiology and church authority. So if you wonder why the General Conference is voting one way and then certain divisions are pushing another way, what does the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy have to say about that? Why do we have disunity in the church? That's what we're going to address next. So why don't we um, end this session with a word of prayer and then we'll take a short break. Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us this morning and for being with us here at GYC. We thank you for the more sure word of prophecy that's like a light that shines into a dark place. Lord, may we not be confused by date setting and reapplication of prophecies that have already been fulfilled. May we not accept prophecies that aren't even prophecies like the 2520. May we realize that when Jesus died on the cross... The ceremonial system passed away and that we are to follow Jesus by faith into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary now that we are in the anti-typical day of atonement. And when Jesus comes back and Michael stands up, may he stand up for us and may our names be found written in the book. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.